on our way through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis written by Moses, and his first target audience was the people of Israel that he's brought out of the land of Egypt. Remember, they had been in Egypt for 400 years, and uh, most of that time after Joseph died and the pharaohs who knew Joseph and Jacob had died, they had become slaves. Uh, and, but now God has brought them through the Red Sea. He's brought them into the wilderness. He's brought them to Mount Sinai. He's speaking to them uh, things about how they need to, to live their lives. And he wrote this book, this first historical book, to re-educate the Israeli people in their heritage. Uh, because they have been living in the Egyptian culture, very affected by the Egyptian culture. And we know that because when you read their story in the book of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, they kept saying, when things got difficult, let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to where we had onions and leeks and those kinds of things to eat. And he is writing this book of Genesis to set a foundation for their faith in God and to trust God. And we are looking at it for the same reason, to show you that the story of Jesus begins in the book of Genesis and goes all the way through the 66 books that make up the Bible. And we've already talked about numerous prophecies and, and foreshadowing of the Messiah who's going to come. Two weeks ago, for the second time, we looked at the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today for the third time. And it was Abram and his trained warriors of his household are returning from the battle that they had won against the coalition of kings from the northeast. And on their way back home to the south end of the Dead Sea, they pass by the city of Salem, later called Jerusalem, where they are met by two kings. Let us read in verse 17 of Genesis 14. After his return from the defeat of Kedalormar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavai, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he, Melchizedek, blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, let Anar, Esco, Mamre take their share. In the last message two weeks ago, we talked about this king of Salem, who was priest of the Most High God, Melchizedek. We looked at his name appears again in Hebrews, where the writer of Hebrews lets the Jewish people know that Melchizedek was a picture of Jesus Christ, who would come to be the king and the priest. 
to be the king who would take David's throne to reign forever and ever. Have you read Revelation where you see that he comes riding and on his vesture is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. But he's also the priest, the high priest, who now makes intercession for you and I continually before God's throne. But in this story, the two kings who come to meet Abram, and along with all those people that he's brought back that have been taken captive. Now, we're not given the details of what it looked like when they rode into the Valley of the Kings. We're not given a word picture about their demeanor, whether they came blasting trumpets and declaring, we are the victors, we are the, we are the victors. We don't know. All we know about is the encounter with these two kings. This story gives us more than facts of history. This story gives us some very important biblical life messages. The first message is this. Sometimes we face our greatest dangers and our greatest temptations after we have won a battle. Sometimes we face the greatest danger of falling into temptation after we have had a great victory. I mean, think about it, the story in the narrative of the Bible. In the book of Joshua, we read of the great victory, the first city that they took. What was the name of that city? Oh, no. Remember, they took Jericho. How did they take Jericho? They marched around the city once every day for seven days, or six days, and on the seventh day, seventh time, and they shouted, blew the trumpets, and the walls came crashing down, and they took the whole city. It was the first city in Canaan that they took and to possess and say, this is our possession. This was promised to Father Abraham, and we're going to receive it. A great victory. They were so impressed with themselves that the next city was Ai, compared to Jericho, a small village. And the military wise guys said to Joshua, it's a small place. We only need a couple thousand of us. The rest of you guys can stay home. And you remember how that story ended? They were retreated. They were, they were totally defeated because they went, number one, not knowing there was sin in the camp. Number two, they went arrogantly, thinking, look what we did before, forgetting that it was God who empowered them. You can go on through the Scriptures and you see other stories. Remember the story of Elijah? Where he says to King Ahab, it's not going to rain until I give the word. And three and a half years later, he shows up and said, meet me on Mount Carmel. Bring the prophets of Baal. We're going to have a, a, a pray down. Whoever prays down fire, let that God be God. And remember, he prays down fire. And, and then he prays in rain. It hasn't rained for three and a half years. There's not a cloud in the sky. But he prays and there's a great rainstorm. Great victory. I mean, he, the people of Israel, they wipe out 450 prophets of Baal as false prophets. Because if you're false prophets, that's what God's law said to do is eradicate you. And then what happened to Elijah? When Jezebel said, God's deal ever with me, if, 
if you're not dead by tomorrow. He's prayed fire down from heaven. He's prayed in rain after a three and a half year drought. And then he gets depressed. And he goes whining, God just kill me because I'm the only one left. For 40 days he whines and mourns. After a great victory, be careful. Be careful of the temptation that will come. You are vulnerable. We are vulnerable. Peter received the commendation from Jesus one day. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. You remember Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And they gave him stories. And then he said, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, Peter, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. The Holy Spirit did. The Father revealed that to you. You're a blessed man. A paragraph later, when Jesus said to the disciples, I'm going to be crucified. That's what I've come to do. Peter takes him aside and said, not on my watch. And Jesus said to the man, and that a moment before he said, you're blessed. He said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of God in mind. You only have the things of man. In a moment of great victory, he became vulnerable, thinking, look what I did. And then he's vulnerable to temptation. Beware of the dangers of temptation to pride after a great spiritual victory or a spiritual experience, the enemy will come. Abram and his men rode into a second battle, but it was not a physical battle that they're going to fight right here. They're met by these two kings, Melchizedek, king of Salem, the high priest of God, and Bera, who was the king of Sodom. These two kings represented two opposite ways of life. They represented two opposite ways of life. Bera, king of Sodom, represented the dominion of a world system that does not include the acknowledgement of the living God. He represented the dominion of the world system that did not include God. We don't need God. We can figure it out ourselves. Or we have our own gods, and they do what we want, the way we want. We don't have to do it. But it, they leave out the living God. Paul described that kind of kingdom in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the kingdom that the king of Sodom represents when we are living without the acknowledgement of the living God. Remember what we read in Genesis 13, 13. It's written in your notes. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. I mean, it's, we're all sinners, but when God says you're a great sinner, 
That's not a compliment. Melchizedek, on the other hand, represents Jesus and righteousness. He represents Jesus and righteousness. If you weren't here two weeks ago, you can go online and listen to the audio or watch the video and catch up where we talked about Melchizedek. Bera, king of Sodom, offered Abram all the spoils of the battle. Just give me the people. Satan's always looking for people. Now, my understanding of the way of war in that era of time was whoever won the battle, it was their legal privilege to take everything from the defeated foe. Uh, and in fact, that was probably the number one reason for war in that day was to go take what everybody else, what the other guy had. Winner takes all. Spoils belong to the conqueror. But verse 22 said, But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. Now that's like making a note. You know when you, you, in, they inaugurate the president, he lifts his hand. When you go to the court and they swear you in as a witness, you raise your hand, I swear. I've lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Lesson two, Abram made a commitment to trust God and Him alone. He made a commitment to trust God and Him alone. And we talked about when he went down to Egypt and the king of Egypt gave him all kinds of riches it seems that those riches and that stuff ended up being the thing that caused the division between him and Lot. So this time when he goes to battle and he comes back with all these spoils, he said, I'm not, I'm not keeping a thing. I'm not keeping a thing. I don't want any man to say that they made me rich. I'm going to trust God. The Apostle John warned the church in the first century A.D. to be aware of these kind of temptations. And we are often confronted, no, we're constantly confronted with the temptation for the prospect of obtaining a boatload of material stuff. John said this, 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. When I read that, to my mind just at this moment comes the words of Jesus, what would a profit a man if he gains the whole world? and loses his own soul. What's the story of Sodom? Did you know that Sodom means burning? And there came a day that's exactly what happened. Lot and his daughters and his wife, they fled the city with the clothes on their back. They lost everything. You see, the world offers to us what appears to be an awesome gift, 
but in the end it will all be burned up. Now Melchizedek, on the other hand, he brings bread and wine to Abram and his men. Bread and wine, does that remind you of anything else you've read in the Bible? Jesus, on the night before he's crucified, partaking of the price of a meal, this bread represents my body. This wine represents my blood. Bread in the Bible is often associated with life. Bread being the staff of life, the essence of life. Wine is, it talks about joy or it sometimes represents the Holy Spirit. And while there's this practical thing that they needed nourishment on their way back from battle, the bread and the wine to feed their physical patients, the teaching significance for us today and the picture that is given to us here is that life and joy are found in Jesus. Life and joy are found in Jesus. Melchizedek, the picture of Jesus, brings to them bread and wine. Those are his gifts to those who trust him. Life and joy are found in Jesus. Lesson number three. Tithing reminds me to put God first and trust Him alone. Tithing reminds me to put God first and trust Him alone. Verse 19, And he, Melchizedek, blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is the first mention of what we call the tithe in the Scriptures specifically. Though some look at the story of Abel and he brought the best lambs, the first lambs from his... Some believe that God talked about tithing even to the first family. Tithe means tenth. Tithe means tenth or tenth means tithe. Ten (coughs) percent. Abram tithe. Jacob tithed. It's a directive we find all through the Scripture to bring to God the first 10%. Solomon wrote these words to his son in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, beginning, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Most of us know those verses, and we can quote them. But read on. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with your first fruit of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits. Moses wrote to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 14.23, You must set aside a tithe of your crops, one-tenth of all your crops you harvest each year. Bring the tithe to the designated place of worship, the place the Lord your God chooses for His name to be honored, and eat it there in His presence. This applies to your tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil, 
the firstborn males of your flocks and your herds. Doing this will teach you always to fear the Lord your God. Tithing teaches me to, f- to fear the Lord our God. Tithing reminds me everything I have is the Lord's. Everything I have is the Lord's. In the parables that Jesus told about money, and by the way, he spoke often about money, and I'm not going to take the time to go all through that, but trust me. We learn that we are stewards or managers of God's resources. He's the owner. We are the managers. He has entrusted us. He's entrusted each one of us with gifts, with money, with opportunities. We are managers of the life and the opportunities that God gives to us. We have this tendency to believe the money I have, the possessions I have, They're mine. I worked hard for them. I paid for them. The reality is whatever you have and the ability you've had to get that stuff came from the grace of God. It can all be gone in a moment. In a moment. Tithing, in a sense, makes the Lord my financial partner. You ever become a financial partner with somebody you should not have become a financial partner with? You ever co-signed for somebody and been bitten by... You know, when you make the Lord your financial partner, you can't lose. We read a moment ago in Proverbs 3, Honor the Lord with your wealth and first fruits. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, your vats will be bursting with wine. Malachi chapter 3, we read these words. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devour for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine, and the fields shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. God has pronounced His blessing on the practice of tithing. I got one amen. God has pronounced His blessing on the practice of tithing. And I know that for many of you, I'm speaking to the choir in the sense that you have learned and you are faithful in giving of your tithes to the Lord. But there are others yet who have not discovered this blessing. And that can be for various reasons. Yeah, I, I, you know, I've been around church long enough to know that there's every once in a while you'll hear somebody say tithing is Old Testament law, and we aren't under the Old Testament law, and so we don't need to give tithe. Well, if you follow that all the way through, if we go to the New Testament and not tithing, the New Testament Paul calls for us to give everything. So. You can take a choice if you want to be biblical. But you know what? We do encounter tithing in the New Testament. Jesus, in fact. In Luke eleven forty two, 42, 
Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint, ruin every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. Now get this. These you ought to have done. You, you should tithe. You should do this without neglecting the others. The whole package deal. I want to talk about this Old Testament law just for a moment. How it relates to today and how we live. Do we throw the law away? How does the Old Testament law apply to giving my first 10% of my income to God and then offerings beyond that? Because if you take the time to read all the way through um, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, you'll find that God has several ways that you're supposed to tithe and to give offerings above that. But in the Old Testament, the law that God gave to Moses, it's more than just the Ten Commandments. There is the judicial admonitions. The judicial admonitions. Then there's the ceremonial admonitions. There's lots of ceremony involved in offering the sacrifices and the cleansing of the people and the cleansing of the priest and the cleansing of the stuff in the, and what time of day they're to give these offerings and all of that stuff. And then there's some moral admonitions. Moral laws that are always moral laws. For example, in the Old Testament, and one of the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt not kill. Right? Well, we're no longer in the Old Testament law. That means if I get really upset at you, it's okay for me to just eliminate you? No, not hardly. In fact, Jesus said, if I hate somebody... I've already committed murder in my heart, and I'm guilty. The Old Testament says, you shall not commit adultery. We're not under the Old Testament law. That means I can... Right? Not hardly. Jesus said, if you look at a person and lust after them, you've already committed adultery, and you're guilty. There are moral laws, always be moral laws. There were ceremonial laws regarding the sacrifices. We no longer keep those laws because Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice. He became the ultimate high priest. We no longer kill bulls or goats or doves when we come into the place of worship. Thank the Lord. Once and for all, Jesus did that. But there are moral laws that God gave that will go on. And I believe that tithing is part of the moral laws that God gave because it teaches me to always put God first in my life. Now, how did God use the tithing? Why did He tell them to tithe besides to treat them to put God first? Tithing was the provision for the priest and their families. It was the provision for the priest and their family. The tribe of Levi, the sons of Aaron, through Levi, became the priest. They were not given an inheritance. They were not given property when they came into the, to the land of Canaan. Their, their job was to, to minister at the tabernacle and then the temple. And so the tithe was brought in to feed them and to feed their families and to take care of them. The, the, the tithe was brought to sustain the house of worship, to sustain the house of worship. The tabernacle that was built 
to house the presence of God and all the things that took place for the sacrifices that were offered morning and evening. The tithe took care of paying for that. And then it also gave them the ability as a nation to help people who were in need. All things that we continue to do today with the tithe that is brought into the storehouse of God. Tithing is giving back to God what is His. What is His? Well, we use the tithe to pay the wages of the pastoral staff and the help staff and all of that, and to use it to bless missionaries around the globe and to minister to the ministries or people in our community. We are giving it to the Lord. We're giving it to the Lord. Now over the years, I know that some people felt like they were giving it to the pastor. And if they got mad at the pastor, they quit giving the tithe. I won't. We'll just go on. In tithing, I'm acknowledging the lordship of God in my life. God takes tithing very seriously. God takes tithing very seriously. We read from Malachi chapter 3 a few moments ago. I need to read the first the verses right before that. We read verses 10 and 11. Verse 8 says this. Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. You say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. And then listen to this. You are cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now that's some pretty stern words. Robbing God. Now I realize that God is not human. And I need to be careful about projecting my human emotions onto Him. But I know what I feel like when I've been robbed. And unfortunately, it's happened more than once in my lifetime. It's not a pretty feeling. God is saying through the prophet Malachi, you're robbing me. They probably had a pretty good list of excuses as to why they thought they could use that tithe for something else. But God didn't see it that way. They were robbing God, and God said, you're placing yourself under the curse instead of the blessing. Now, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, when God gave the law, in that chapter, there's a whole list of things. If you do this, if you obey God, God will bless you coming in, going out. He'll bless your family if you obey the word. There is probably two or three times more curses if you do not obey God. And that's not a matter of God being vindictive. It's a matter of God establishing some laws. What happens when you fall off a roof? The law of gravity. And so when God says you're cursed, it's not because of vindictiveness. It's because he set in motion some principles. If you follow and obey, 
you're blessed. If you do not obey, the natural outcome is going to be a curse, something less than what you expected, something less than what was promised to you by the other philosophy of life. Abram gave to Melchizedek a tenth of everything he acquired in the victory of the battle. He tied to the representative God, the priest of the Most High God. Now, I know there are folks who get offended when the pastor talks about money. But Jesus had some very important things to say about money, so I'm not ashamed and I've come to the place a long time ago where I know that I need to talk about money and when we look at it in the Scripture. And somebody says, well, is faith family hurting today financially? And the answer to that is absolutely not. It's just in the text this morning, and that's why I talk about it. And I feel that we need to preach the full gospel. It's not about faith family, it's about God and it's about you. I want to tell you about a conversation that took place on the phone between a pastor and somebody in his church that I read in a book years ago, and I've, I've kept it on file. Uh, the, the man who was part of the church had never really developed the discipline of Bible reading. So the way he would read the Bible, and I've met other people who do that, is in the morning he would get up and he would close his eyes and open it up and put his finger down and he would read that passage of Scripture on that particular day. Well, one day, as fate would have it, he closed his Bible, then opened it up, put his finger down, and he came to what I just read to you from Malachi chapter 3, Will a man rob God? And it upset him to the point that he called the pastor immediately. What's the deal with this tithing thing? And then he said, is this for everybody? Is this on the gross or is this on the net? Is this retroactive? Because if this is retroactive, we're talking serious money here. This pastor finally breaks into the conversation, settle down, take a chill pill here. But it was hard for him to do because the fact of the matter was the pastor and the man both knew that this man, the most important thing in his, important, in his adult life was money. His self-esteem was wrapped up around the wealth that he'd built. His sense of power was connected to money. Control of his children was connected to his money, which, by the way, is not a good thing. It had been his sense of security. The tithing principle was quite upsetting to him because it was messing with what had been his true treasure of his life, his whole adult life. I don't remember what his name was, and I'll just call him Jack in my notes. Not his real name. Bill, Pastor Bill said, Jack, I'm glad you went across the tithing passage because the tithing passage is going to force you to do a heart check, a gut check, and a faith check. It's going to cause you to do a heart check, a gut check, and a faith check. He went on to say, Jack, I know you well enough to know the grip that money has had on you. And when you run in with Across this tithing passage, this is heart check time. We're going to see what you're made of now. 
We're going to see what your faith is really all about. This pastor had God's guts and just said it like it was. Jack put the tithing principle aside just for a moment. And he said, tell me again how you met Christ a few months ago. Just tell me the story again. Jack said, well, you know how it went. You and I had lunch in this restaurant in a certain place. Over the lunch table, you drew a picture on the paper napkin showing the difference between trying to earn your way to heaven and receiving grace through what Jesus did on the cross. You described the difference between the performance plan and the grace plan. The difference between doing things to earn God's favor and done. Resting in what Jesus Christ had done on the cross. Jack said, I remember after lunch taking that napkin, put it at my desk back at work, and it worked on me all afternoon. I left work early, went straight home, went to my bedroom, fell on my knees, and asked what Jesus Christ and asked what Jesus Christ had done for me on the cross to be applied to the sins of my life. And I discovered amazing grace. Pastor Bill said, I remember that day too, Jack, because you called me that night. You told me you understand why they call grace amazing. I'll never forget that night, Jack. Jack said, I won't either. Pastor said, well, Jack, when someone lays down their life for you, when they wipe the slate of all your sins clean, when they invite you into their very own family, when someone secures your eternity and promises to bless your life between here and there, when someone has given you everything and then asks you to honor them and show gratitude through some practical behavior and commitment, don't you think our heartfelt immediate response ought to be, yes, Lord, whatever, Lord, just say the word. Pastor said, Bill, you got to do the heart check. Jack, tithing, this is in your notes, isn't really fundamentally about money. It's about the condition of your heart before God. Tithing is not really an issue about money. It's about the condition of your heart before God. And then pastor just let those words hang on the line and Jack just listened for a moment. Pastor's thinking he can hang up on me here. This is serious business. This is hard stuff. And then he hears Jack on the other end of the line. I'm sorry. So terribly, terribly sorry. Talking more to God than this pastor. I needed this heart check. And I'm going to make it right from this day forward. And he did. You see, when Jack saw the tithing principle against the backdrop of a blood-stained cross, he realized that Christ ought to be honored no matter how much it cost. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present yourself a living sacrifice. God gave his best. The least we can do is the minimum that he asks to honor him. Remember Jesus' teaching? 
Jesus said there's always a clear winner in the God versus money battle. God said there's always a clear winner in the God versus money battle. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Malachi's question to you today is, who's the clear winner in the God versus money battle that goes on in our hearts? The command to tithe sort of calls our bluff. It smokes out the true winner of God versus the money battle, regardless of how good the game looks. Context is everything. When you make your giving decisions against the backdrop of a bloodstained cross, you give totally different. A heart check. A heart check. This is not in your notes, but I put it on the screen. When we talk about a gut check, what I mean is there's a character step you have to take in order for your heartfelt commitment to start honoring God with your money to really take effect. The gut check is, I know in my heart I need to do it. And I am going to do it. Not next year, but beginning today. I'm going to put what I feel in my heart, and I'm going to do it. To get on board with God's financial management discipline. That means you'll sit down with your calculator, figure how much money you really earn. These days, you can get a paycheck and you can have all your money going here, there, and everywhere and think that you've only brought home $100 when you've really made $10,000. It takes character. It takes character. Discipline. Bill told Jack on the phone that day, a heart check without a gut check is a setup for hypocrisy. A heart check without a gut check is a setup for hypocrisy. Just to say, I know I should tithe and not do it. Pastor Bill said that's hypocrisy. Gut check time. Proverbs says, honor the Lord with the first fruits of your harvest. The idea here is an agricultural metaphor. Farmers, they lived in a culture where that's it was all agriculture. And so the tithe would be at the harvest time. And they would bring the first fruits, the first 10%. You first, God. You first, God. Not the leftovers. The leftovers were for the people who were poor, and they would go by their fields and glean what was left over. God told them to do that. But the first fruits belonged to God. Many of us here have developed the practice. The first thing, first bill we pay is our, our tithe. If you wait to pay your tithe at the end, you'll never have enough money. If you pay your tithe at the beginning, 
God said, I'll open the windows of heaven, and somehow there's always enough. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all these things. A faith check. It takes faith to honor God with money. It takes faith to honor God with money because you know what? Mathematically, it does not make sense. To give away 10% of my income and to believe that I will live better than I have 100% of my income does not make logical, mathematical sense. But that's God's ways. That's God's ways. God says, put me first. And that 90%, 80%, whatever's left will go further because I will bless you. I will bless you. Abram said, I lifted my hand to Yahweh. I'll not take a shoelace from Berah, lest you say to him, you may be rich. I'm going to trust God for provision. Malachi wrote that God promised to open the windows of heaven, pour out blessings. He said, I'll prevent the pest from destroying your crops. Your fruit will not fall from the vine before it's time. And the nations will call you blessed. You know what God is saying when he says to tithe? God is saying, trust me. Trust me. I've got you. Honor me first, and I will honor you. The Christian life is all about trusting God. It's all about faith. You cannot be a Christian without faith, without trusting God. Trusting that the blood of Jesus Christ will wash away all of your sins because Jesus paid the price. Trusting that, that on the day that God touches you once on the heart and once on the lungs and you stand before Him, you know that you're going to be there forever because your faith is in Jesus Christ. Do you have that assurance in your heart today? Can you sing what we sang earlier, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Trust the Lord. We're going to stand and we're going to sing one more time the song we ended.